Hello, and welcome to Fact Schmacks. It's the podcast good enough to get you a C. Minus. My name's Matt, and I've got a story to tell you. My name's Kev. I have a story to interrupt. Hey, <laughs> Kevin. Matthew. How has uh, how your week been, buddy? Uh, it's been good. It's been busy. Uh, you know, lots of things going on. How about you? It's been pretty good, you know. A little lacking, uh, perhaps? A little lacking, as it always is, uh, right up until uh, this moment. This moment yes. is when it all comes to fruition. Absolutely. This moment makes my week. So, uh, I don't know if these episodes will be released cr- chronologically, but last week, in honor of our new bit kind of segment we're doing on our show, Fact Schmacks This or That, I gave you two options. That is uh, true. There were two options. <laughs> I can't remember which one you picked as normal. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so we have the other one because I was all like, oh, I should probably do uh, two and keep pumping this or that. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. I already got it made. I'm just going to let it ride this time. I'll just bring it up. So we got a new thing, this or that. Two options. Look for it. It's fun. It's more podcast, less effort. So without yeah. much further ado, we're going to talk about some phobias. Yay. And we're going to put we're going to put the C in phobias. No, that episode didn't come to fruition, so we have new phobias. Okay. Which are also C themed on the podcast okay. good enough to get you a C. Hey, there we go. So, you know, let's let's jump into it. Factor schmacked, Matt. Yes. Choreophobia. Is the fear of dancing. Choreophobia. Choreo. Choreo. Choreophobia. Yeah. Uh, No, it's clearly the fear of Corys. That's quarry with a Q. This is C. Like choreograph. Choreophobia. No, Corys like, uh, you know, Corey Feldman. Oh, God damn it. Continue. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Factor schmacked, chronophobia is a fear of time. Ah. Mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Factor is schmacked, Matt. Oh, my God, yes. Chronometrophobia is a fear of clocks. <laughs> Clono, chronometrophobia. It's the fear of clocks. What was that first one again? Choreophobia. Choreo, like choreograph, choreophobia. Yeah. The second one's chronophobia. Chronophobia is the fear of time. And chronometrophobia is the fear of clocks. What's it going to be, presented me with, You've presented me with three that have a, a pretty internally consistent uh, logic. Um, TikTok, unless you're <laughs> chronometrophobic. <laughs> I believe that one. Uh, I'm going to go with the sec- fear of clocks. Sure. Why wouldn't you? Okay. So you're going to go with the second one, which is chronophobia. No, no, that's not what I'm. No, no, no. I'm going with the first one. That's, that's the, the one I think. Is the sh- yeah. God damn you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What gave it away? Uh, lucky guess. Uh, actually, you know what? The, no, the, lucky guess. What, moving on. No, uh, what it was, was, um, between chronophobia and chronometrophobias, there was there's the common link of 
It didn't seem right that one would be right and not the other one. Really? You get I me? Because I there's the common root. You would have thought that I just dropped the dropped or added a word to it. Well, just you know yeah, how lazy be, I am sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I did ponder that too. Uh, but yeah, to me, it just it it seemed inconsistent that one could be wrong and the other, yeah, one of, that one of them could be wrong. Well, son of a bitch. Uh huh. So, that, but that that was that was the logic I was going with. Great. That's wonderful. <coughs> funny you mentioned. You. Um, yeah, funny you mentioned Chrono. I'm I'm playing a video game right now called Chrono Cross, which is a it's an old Japanese role playing game that that I played when I was a teenager. Sequel to a uh, an old Super Nintendo game called Chrono Trigger that a lot of people love and hold dear. You know, a lot of people do love and, and hold some video games dear, don't they? I sure do. Right? Everybody loves playing a video game these days. Bet you wonder. I bet you wonder how that all video game <clears throat> craze got started in the first place, don't you? Pong. Well... I feel like we're going to find out. We're about to find out. In 1969. Wait a minute. Uh, wait, 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 wait. This is going to be a trilogy, you said? Mm-hmm. Let's address well, that oh, off the hop. So, okay, yeah. So the Chronologically. Story that, the story that we're telling, uh, I, I, I wanted to tell the story, and then I realized that there was basically two stories that I had to tell before that to get to a spot that would where a lot of the parts of the story would make sense. Uh, so this is the f- first of three episodes that are, um, yeah, so going to be about video games uh, and the early history of video games. In trilogy speak, that means this is the best. The next one will be okay. And the third, some will love, most will hate. I think um, that's about how that works. I hope. Well, I hope not, because the third's the one... <laughs> This is the starting point, really. That's the one I really want to tell. Anyways, in 1969, a young man named Nolan Bushnell was having an epiphany. I had one uh, of those once. Yeah? Yeah. I had an epiphany once. You let me tell three sentences in a row. (laughs) That's pretty good. Uh, 1969. 69, Nolan Bushnell. Uh... He's inside Stanford University looking at a gym-sized computer running a program called Space War. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it has an exclamation mark, so it's Space War. Yeah, okay. Uh, for a few years in, uh, in college, this guy, Nolan Bushnell, he'd been running the game section of an amusement park, and he knew from his experience with coin-operated amusements that people would pay good money, lots of money, to play something like this, you know, kind of simple vector graphics game that he was looking at. His head spinning with possibilities. He does the math, and his excitement kind of quickly goes away because, you know, the computer he's looking at costs a million dollars. There's no break-even point when you're, you know, you're you're getting people to uh, pump in quarters. Yeah. Yeah. But he was aware of this thing called Moore's Law. Do you uh, do you do you know what Moore's Law is? I don't. Computer and I guy. I feel like I'm going to find out. Moore's Law is a theory that states that uh, every two years, the amount of transistors in uh, 
uh, processor doubles, I believe. Um, I've heard it. I just haven't heard. I've heard that theory, but not presented as Moore's law. Um, yeah, that's so basically at the end of the day, it means that computers get uh, more powerful and cheaper over time. Okay. Uh, so he knew that there would come a time, you know, when the finances were going to work. So two years later, uh, Nolan Bushnell and his business partner, Ted Dabney, formed a company called Syzygy to try and make a space war. Sorry, space war clone. <laughs> uh, now, they were successful in making it. I think it was called Space Command. Um, but it didn't really perform very well. They were able to, I think they had like a million dollars in, in sales, but they, had, they needed more than that. And th- so they needed change, you know, if this like thing was going to be. And nickels and dimes? Well, no, actually, they needed to change their name uh, because it turned out that Syzygy was a company that someone had already founded. Uh, so instead, they what did, borrowed. What did they, do? they borrowed a term from the game Go, and they founded Atari Incorporated. Oh, maybe maybe you've heard of Atari. What's the? Uh, what do you mean the game Go? The the Chinese game Go. Oh, Atari. Yeah, apparently the. Yes, apparently it's it's something akin to check, I believe, from from my very limited understanding. Okay. Yeah, so these guys found Atari Incorporated, but they realized the game that they'd made was too complex for, you know, their audience which they figured out uh figured was essentially drunks at bars. Uh so they needed a simpler game. Uh they hired a guy named Alan Alcorn. Uh, and charged him with making a coin-op version of the first home console game ever, the Magnavox Odyssey's Tennis. Uh, and so was born Atari's Pong. Nice. Came out in 1972, and, you know, their first, uh, their first test cabinets that they put out there, you know, Alcorn gets a call pretty quickly saying that the machine's broken. They're thinking, oh, no. Uh, but uh, apparently, uh, famously, they went and they found out that the, it was the coin mechanisms that were broken because people had shoved too many goddamn quarters in there trying to play this pong. Well, that's a good so problem it to was, have. It's a good problem to have. It was a huge hit. Um, so the, they kind of... pong with that. <laughs> Even they, I'm uh, with that. That's a terrible... They, uh, you know, they followed this up with a bunch of other uh, arcade games, um a game called Tank, a bunch of games that I've never really heard of from this period other than Pong and then various different versions of Pong. There was like Super Pong and Quadra Pong, and I'm sure some Atari aficionado is is out there, and uh, if you're listening to this and you're mad at me, I am so sorry. That's all I've got to say for myself. I meant to write down a list of what those games were, and I did not get down to it. <laughs> Fact schmacks, um, ladies and gentlemen. Facts, but uh, during this period, you know, Bushnell and Dabney, they develop a disagreement over the direction of the company and Dabney sells a stake to Bushnell and he leaves. So uh, probably not great, um, but who knows? In 1974, um, Bushnell decides that coin-op is, is way too competitive in industry and that the home console market uh, is maybe the way that things are going to go. So without you know leaving the coin-op uh, business, 
they started making plans to get into the console business, start designing this this machine, this Atari VST. Um, so and and you know so the, so the idea is that this thing is going to be powerful enough that it could run games from cartridges, uh, and they can sell cartridges to you know make money off off recurring software sales. That was sort of a revenue revolutionary uh, idea at the time. Uh, turns out though that that was very expensive. So to to raise capital, Bushnell sold Atari to Warner Communications. That's like you know Warner Brothers. Okay. So. Uh, but that was a company with the financial muscle uh, to see this project through. Now, during this you know period, 1974, I think in 1976, maybe this this happens. But we actually we alluded to this in an earlier episode, maybe even two earlier episodes. Um, but during this time, Atari had hired a young, fresh-faced gentleman by the name of Stephen Jobs. Never heard of him. Okay, well, never mind. No sense in telling this story. Uh, but uh, they had hired him as an um, engineer, I think. Uh, and Nolan Bushnell had had the idea. He designed a lot of the games. He would like conceptualize them, and then the developers would, he'd, you know, toss that off to a developer who would go and make that happen. And you know, seventies tech, which was really. <laughs> It's really impressive stuff if you go back and look at it, yeah. what they were doing. Um, but uh, he was he pitched a game to Steve Jobs called Breakout, and um, or he pitched it to Al Alcorn, and Al Alcorn um, then tasked Jobs with doing it, um, even though Jobs Steve Jobs didn't actually do it. Uh, I'll get to that. Anyways, Breakout was supposed to be a single player version of Pong. You know the you know the game where I'm talking about, so right? You shoot the bricks out. Yeah, exactly. You shoot a wall of bricks, and you've got your your paddle that goes back and forth, and yeah. So it, I kind of get it as yeah, okay, single player pong. But uh, what it what Atari and Bushnell had done was challenge Steve Jobs to make this thing with as few chips as possible, and they had uh, offered him a, re- a reward of a hundred dollars per chip that he's able to remove from this um, f- from this thing. You know, uh, under a certain benchmark, you know, so design the uh, prototype of this game and uh, make sure that it has under this amount of chips, you know, drive costs down. Well, Steve Jobs goes to his buddy, uh, Steve Wozniak, who at the time was working for um, Commodore, I think. Uh, Oh, geez. Anyways, um, and he tells uh, Wozniak that... (laughs) He's got uh, a deal to get paid 700 bucks to do this thing. So Woz does such a good job that Jobs gets paid $5,000. Uh, and he had told Wozniak that it was a $700 job, so he gave him half. Uh, he gave him his $350 share. He was such a dick. Uh, I, like I was watching. a businessman, you know, like just profit yeah. over anything else. There was a there was a quote later on from Waz saying that you know basically I think he said I th- he needed the money more or less like if he'd asked for it I would have given it to him but yeah you know I don't know Still there, I was I was watching uh, clips from an interview with Nolan Bushnell you know talking about his time that time and dealing with Steve Jobs and 
he did say that he never really dealt with the bad Steve Jobs, but the way he framed it is he had he dealt with enough that he moved um, he moved Steve to the night engineering shift, which did not exist before. <laughs> You're so, before he was on it and that's that's the thing about that dude like he's so good at his job you don't fire him but he's such an asshole you put him somewhere where you can't you know <laughs> yeah. you don't have to deal with him yeah or he's just the sort of guy who shouldn't have a boss well i mean or doesn't do well with a boss he obviously did better uh on his own yeah <laughs> seems, seems like um but actually the you know the some of the expertise uh, that you know they needed to found Apple, they picked up from uh, from Atari. Um, in 1977, the Atari VCS, which we we know more commonly as the 2600, it was rebranded as the 2600 uh, in a little bit. Um, it's released, but it doesn't sell very well. Um, the following year, uh, Nolan Bushnell winds up getting pushed out of the company. Uh, because the uh, the guy who was kind of representing Warner Communications interests wanted to swap out the the R and D department essentially for a marketing department. Um, to that guy's credit, that plan actually worked pretty well. They rebranded the the VCS as the twenty six hundred. They changed the design of it a little bit, shipped it with some paddles, and you know, all of a sudden, this thing starts selling like like hotcakes. Um, they wound up, you know, selling 30 million of these things. Yeah. Uh, they sold 30 million of these things between 77 and 92, which I did not realize they were still making them until 92. 77 Uh, to 92. Yeah. The same Atari. Yeah. Wow. That thing would have been so goddamn outdated in like 1980. Well, as soon as the Nintendo came out, it was super outdated. But that's a story for another day. Um, Anyways. Foreshadowing. Maybe. Uh, But uh, yeah, at the the height of Atari's revenue, they represented 80% of Warner Communications revenue. Oh, no kidding. So they were, you know, for a brief moment, they were an extremely profitable company. Now, it should be said at this point, there's... There's at even at this point, there's kind of two divisions within Atari. There's still the coin op division, which at this point is producing games that, you know, you would know like Centipede and, um, you know, other things. Uh, a bunch of successful games came out of this, you know, coin op, this period of the coin op uh, business. But uh, yeah, the the home console business all of a sudden was huge and just came out of nowhere. But. There was trouble brewing, friend. <clears throat> as there, there was often tr- is. As there often is, there was trouble on the horizon. Um, during the Warner takeover of Atari, the the atmosphere uh, had you know gone from being pr- what you could kind of describe as. Well, I think the best way to describe the attitude at Atari in the early days is a place that we would really like to work at and would fit in at. Uh, in terms of a lot of marijuana and a lot of marijuana. Yeah. Uh, very, uh, very hippie atmosphere. Um, I dig it now. Yeah, I, I absolutely, uh, now a guy, uh, one of the guys who worked there said that was, you know, that was more like culture of the time. Yes. I think they would let us wear our awesome sleeveless facts, schmacks shirts that we wear for every episode. 
I think that they would until Warner comes in. And they're like, and, put those uh, guns away, son. Yeah, absolutely. You're scaring Sharon. Put, put that gun show away. Sharon's scared. <laughs> so this, uh, you know, the, the, the suits start to change the atmosphere inside of Atari, and that kind of starts to wear, you know, one little thing that starts to wear on some of the longer-time developers. Um, they also had a policy of not crediting any of the developers who worked on any of the games. They wanted every game to just be associated with only Atari as the the creator. Um, and so, you know, if you're a designer who's making these absolute bangers for the company and you're getting, you know, not that much money on a game that could sell millions of units <coughs> um, and you're not even getting, you know, paid an exposure <laughs> or credit, yeah. uh, you'd start to get, you know, a little frustrated. So four developers broke off from Atari and they formed a company called Activision. Uh, oh, and, nice. Yeah, and just like that, the concept of a third-party developer became a thing. Like, it just didn't even exist in the uh, in the video game world before that. Yeah. Right? Because you're just, you're either putting out your own proprietary hardware or, or, or that was it. Yeah. Um, so Activision starts releasing games for the Atari 2600, and Atari does not like that because their entire business model for the console is... Was the software. Uh, is the software. They're actually selling the hardware at a loss, and they're counting on getting a piece of all the software on the back end. Um, so so, so they, wait a minute. They didn't have any of this hardware that fit with the Atari patented? Well, they'd patented, but they didn't hadn't, like, locked anything out there was no lockout chip like there was on the nes or like there would be on modern consoles there wasn't you know like they they hadn't thought about it because it wasn't a thing sure (laughs) so i give them some credit there um but uh yeah they um they sued activision uh, but they lost, which is a good thing probably uh, in the long run for the consumer. Um, but at the time, wound up being maybe not such a great thing. Because uh, now that there's a legal precedent saying that just just anybody can put out an Atari game, you know, pretty much everybody did for a little bit. You know, and it's great, you know, if you're Activision, you're putting out Pitfall, which, you know, everybody agrees is a stone cold classic. But not too many people remember Chase the Chuck Wagon, brought to you by the fine people at Purina. <laughs> so the market just starts getting flooded with games of wildly varying quality. Um, and consumers start to get a little wary of, you know, the, the video game market software catalog in general. Um, at the same time, the Apple II computer comes out, uh, it means that affordable computers are now making their way into people's homes and people are starting to get the idea of why buy a device that does, you know, only one thing there when you can, uh, you know, get something that does it all, um, in 1982 days. Hey, that's when I was born. Hey, hey. Old. You're old. I'm very old. You're 
You're an old damn man. I'm just a young man. Um, you okay there, Mr. 83. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, surely, though, the, uh, the quality software coming out of Atari should be able to keep the company afloat. Right? Wrong. Well, wrong. Rather than realize that um, name recognition was probably the strongest card that management had or that, that, that the company had, um, they made a series of incredibly poor decisions which wound up kind of gambling their, their consumer goodwill away. The first was, was Pac-Man. How could Pac-Man be bad? Right? Yeah, I mean, that's a classic. That is a classic. Well, Atari had gotten a license to publish the game late in the year of 1982. And rather than wait until the next holiday season, uh, they rushed out a legendarily bad port. Uh, it did sell 8 million copies. But the problem with selling 8 million copies of a shockingly bad game is that that winds up being a, just a terrible advertisement for your product. And you have consumers that feel burned. Like this, you... You would have to go up and, and go and look up footage uh, of this, but it is it does not even really resemble Pac-Man all that much. To developers' credit, apparently he he showed the he showed the management of his or his managers a prototype, and they were just like, "Ah, fuck, release that. Good enough." Sounds like uh, cyberpunk release. <laughs> that was such a letdown, man. I followed all the news for that game. I got <clears throat> my fiance bought it for me for my birthday and I downloaded it and I was like, man, where's apparently all the it's good, playable now. Good, good. I know <laughs> I got to go back to it. I've just been so busy. I've hardly had time to play games lately. A pine on cyberpunk for one moment while I grab a beer. Oh God, Matt. Why don't you just edit this out? Why do you always do this to me? Just leave me here to natter and ramble on at people. Nobody wants to hear this shit. They came here for, uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure why you're here. This is fact schmacks. It's not exactly the high quality production you might so wish to hear. I stashed it very close. Oh, that's good. That's good. I hope you edit that out, but I know you won't because you never do. (laughs) Just leave me to awkwardly, you know, mumble my way through what would otherwise Mm be 45 seconds Mm -hmm. of silence. Starfield got delayed. Game that I'm quite excited about. Oh no! Uh, what? And yeah, one of the uh, one of the developers was apparently quoted as saying they were very much concerned about being the next Cyberpunk. So as long as they're making sure that their game that uh, the game works. Yeah, I as, uh, I'm gonna replay it. I'm gonna try it. It it looks good. There was good things about it. I played. They put out a demo on Xbox and I played it there they gave like a free 10 hours with the uh, uh the next gen update and it seemed like pretty polished I just didn't really love the underlying game that yeah. much yeah. so I don't know I, I probably needed to give it more time um but yeah so anyways back to Atari here uh they'd sold 8 million dollar 8 million copies of a very very bad 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 uh port of of Pac-Man but they still had a ton of copies left. And I think they, they also, yeah, so they, they had a lot of copies that were returned to them from, um, from retailers. Similarly, 
Uh, Atari had paid 25 or so million dollars uh, for the license to publish a game based on E.T. <laughs> I've heard of E.T., the game. The, yeah. Then, uh, so having paid $25 million for the license, they give one developer roughly two months to program it. It's a complete disaster. Uh, and they also made way too many copies of that game. Supposedly, there was a surplus of three and a half million copies. Uh, apparently, they buried a bunch of them in the... Well, not apparently. Uh, it's did, n- now known for a fact. A, yeah, There's like a Netflix show or something on it. It's like the worst yeah. game ever made, they say. Yes. Like it's, it's unplayable. It's, <laughs> it's very, as unplayable very as Faxmax is unlistenable. <laughs> <laughs> we are the... We are the E.T. game of podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're more of the Pac-Man. Yeah, okay. Uh, We're just a bad port. In in December of 82, an earnings report from Atari um, stated that the company would miss earlier growth projections on account of competition from, you know, other third parties uh, from computers, uh, from just coin op, which they were still doing. So they're also kind of competing with themselves there. But this news actually sent the market for video games like literally spiraling. Uh, investors started pulling out of Warner Communications in uh, droves. Their stock lost. I think it went from $50 to $20 or $70 to $20. Like it lost a ton of its... Uh, its value almost overnight. Um, Third-party development all but dries up for the uh, for the Atari. So now no software is selling f- for the thing, um, except for Activision, which is still making some games. But the back-to-back disasters from uh, you know disaster releases from Atari meant that consumers no longer trusted their brand, and at that point, retailers stopped even stocking the product. The market for video games just dries up from an earnings report. Oh. Uh, Atari went from reporting revenue in billions to losing over $500 million in 1983. Warner sold that part of the company to a guy named Jack Trammell, uh, but the North American video game industry didn't recover until 1986. Um, I think I know when, what happened that. When something else happened... Um, Nolan Bushnell, on the other hand, um, founded uh, Chuck E. Cheese after he left Atari. No shit. Uh, so, so he's got that going for him. So in a roundabout way, he's actually responsible for uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, too. Oh, yeah. He's responsible for most of our childhood. <laughs> I always <laughs> wish we had a Chuck E. Cheese nearby. Yeah. We missed out. Yeah. Not seeing creepy animatronic animals. Yeah. Five Apparently... He thought it was. Sorry, you go ahead. No, yeah. uh, Ask your question. Five Nights at Freddy's is Chuck E. Cheese. Well, it's based like it's creepy animatronic. uh, I guess that and was it Showtime Pizza is the other one that has a similar sort of weird mascot thing. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I you know we grew up in small town, right? I have no none of these cultural touchstones. Um. So yeah. Um. Post-video game crash, Atari, uh, Warner Communications sold the consumer division, so the uh, the home console division 
uh, because the coin op division is still actually making money. Uh, but they sold the consumer division to a guy named Jack Trammell in 1984. Um, the deal they made said that Warner's Atari couldn't compete in the the console market um, against Trammell's company, which he now called Atari Games. So there were two. There still is two. Se- there still is two separate Ataris. There's oh, okay. Atari and Atari Games. Yeah, and they're Dude. they're owned by. What's their current game? Because I know I've seen the Atari thing. I feel like on the Switch, one of my Switch games has an Atari. Um, and I can't for the life of me. I've been so yeah, there is like the an Atari time. Museum game that came out. I think. Okay, like a re, like a retro kind of thing. Yeah, I think there was a re- retro uh, collection. Um, but the the deal that they had made really only stopped them from competing with the Atari brand. So they to get around that, they just founded a label called Tengen or Tengen. I don't know if you remember that Is label. Still are, they're still around? No. I remember um, that. They actually, yeah, well, you know what? We're going to park con- con- any conversation about that company right okay. there because okay. we may or may not be revisiting that lab- later. Okay. Uh the the Atari Games company though that the the that Jack Trammell bought, uh, they did release a few more consoles. I don't know if you remember the Atari Jaguar, that thing that had that unholy thing that had uh, uh, it was supposed to be sixty four bits and it had a controller with a number pad on it. I believe it was released to compete against the Genesis and Super Nintendo, like towards the end. Where of does that the generation. Commodore come in? The Commodore was around at the same time. That was was one of the kind of... Yeah, that was a competing device. Uh, That kind of... I think the Commodore 64... uh, The Commodore 64 and the Atari 2600 were direct competitors. Okay. They're part of what you'd consider the second generation of consoles. Okay. What was the first generation? The first Atari? No, the Magnavox Odyssey. Oh, wow. Just like basically plug-and-play games that only did one thing. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember back in the day, like having to put it on channel three or you'd have to have that UHF converter or like you'd have the thing where it had, you could screw in the cable, like the coax cable, but then it had the two prongs that you would hook into the antenna thing. Yes. Do you remember all that? We always had, we always had cable. Oh, so we never had to use that. That antenna prong <laughs> thing. I had to use it on like the basement TV kind of stuff, you know, like the. Oh, you know what? Yeah. Sometimes you did have like grounded or something, right? Yeah. Yes. I do remember that now. Yeah. Okay. Or, or there'd be like uh, the converters and stuff. Dude, like you'd have to, if you wanted to play a game, you'd have to have like half a Radio Shack stock set up. <laughs> There's so many, so many breakpoints in that uh, signal. You kids these days, you don't understand the pain no, of no daisy-chaining coaxial cables. Yeah, channel. You don't have to be on channel three. Like when was the last? Or you time got you one thing that set ch- looked at if normal your, TV. Yeah, your uh, your console set for you know it had its own channel selector, so it's set to channel four, but it's plugged into the VCR, which is set to channel three. So you got to have the TV on channel three, but the VCR on channel four. Because remember, the VCR had its own channel tuner built into it too. Yeah. Do you remember that shit? Yeah. Dude, VCRs. Madness. Tape. Now, like, even even when we talk about our podcast, I'm like, usually I say let's record, but every now and then it's like, 
Yeah, we're going to tape a show tonight. The lex- that's Yeah, I love Who the lexicon tape? of like old stuff that's... Eh, people still say tape. It's just... I don't know. It's so weird. When they're painting. Yeah, it's funny. Like the... The things that have changed since even we were young is the the technological growth is insane. Leaps and bounds, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember playing a, a, an Atari 2600. Now, I... You know, I, I'm born in 83, so and the Nintendo, the NES comes out in, in 86. So, you know, it's not like uh, I, I'm not young enough to remember when the Atari was the hot thing. I vaguely remember um, because I never had video games until the N64. Hmm. So I would always play at neighbors' houses. And I remember the, the, the neighbor right beside me, he had an Atari and we would play it. Or try to play it because it was super, super jank. And it yeah. would be like, you know, sometimes you could get a game to work, sometimes you couldn't. Yeah. You'd blowing on it and smacking it into the thing, hoping it would register. And, yeah. And uh, even if you did get it to work, you know, if you had already played, you know, Super Mario, it's so hard to go back to any anything pre Super Mario with like running physics and jumping physics. And that's, um, that's another thing, too. Like, there's a lot of people who like to play retro games. And I'm like, why? It's like when I listen to <laughs> records. My my daddy's like, why the fuck do you want to listen to a record? You got to get up and change it halfway through. It's like CDs and MP3s, man. Like, because oh, he grew up with streaming it, so, music. Is, it's so the best. He went, yeah, he went like Everything. records, tapes, CDs, MP3s. So he's like, why would I go back to that? Whereas me, I'm like, I just like having the big album, you know, this and that. I like the the sound of it. But like with gaming, I'm like, why? Why, man? Like ray tracing. Okay, the thing, the There's thing so many great things now. Why would you want to go to 8-bit? Aside from maybe Mario for nostalgia. but uh, How do you feel about, uh, have you played any boomer shooters? Boomer shooters? Boomer shooters. So games that are... Um, made to modern games that are made to to look or feel like you know a, a classic duke nukem uh you know duke nukem 3d or quake or um no i i want more of them to come out on consoles because i do not play fps games on pc but i would like to play some of those because yeah they incorporate it's like uh you know quake but with ray tracing which actually they did put out a version of quake with ray tracing now i think um yeah, if Anyways. I could afford a graphics card capable of it, or at least find <laughs> find one. Yeah, I think they're kind of getting back more back into stock. Yeah. But I, I do kind of agree with you because yeah, having played games since the NES days, where you you know in a lot of cases had to imagine that a block was you know your your uh, was a lot of things. You're doing a lot of the heavy lifting yourself, having gone through every generation. A lot of that stuff is legitimately very difficult to go back to, but there still are some classic games I probably just for nostalgia's sake like going through again well you were just saying you were playing a game uh yeah that was a play that's like a a playstation era yeah 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 they re-released it well we Uh, have so i'm just going on a little nostalgia trip we have two switches two nintendo switches i know we're probably going to talk about nintendo event at some point but we uh we settle a lot of issues around this house with tetris (laughs) <laughs> like dog poop dishes who's cooking dinner best two out of three we'll play tetris and that was like dude i think one of my first game i had a game boy 
And yeah. one of the earliest games I remember enjoying was Kirby's Dreamland. Yeah. I got it for my birthday from my grandma. I remember getting it and being so excited. Like the old school Nintendo uh, Game Boy, like black and white, just, you know. Yeah. Remember, remember those old, uh, like you would have like the racing game and it was like a Konami, like handheld, like stand one, one off kind of game that you would get. They'd have like a Street Fighter game and a racing game. I think you think Tiger. Tiger, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tiger Electronics. Yeah, they put out those, uh, yeah, those handheld. Yes. Yeah. I had a Simon's Quest uh, Tiger Electronics thing that was probably straight terrible. I believe I had a Mega Man one. Yeah, and then to go back and try and play one of those now. like Oh, that would be real hard. It's like I where they would have not like the car I would, would always be on the screen, and then you would yeah. just kind of the the background, would, the track would change, and <laughs> yeah. all the vehicle. That would be yeah. pretty difficult to go back to. I feel, but like an NES game, I could go back. There's a lot of NES games I could still well, go back to. I was gonna say like there's we, about like, five I could still go back to. <clears throat> SNES, played, there's a lot more. Uh, we play the Nintendo Switch, and they've got all the classic games, and every now and then we'll put the. Uh, Put Super Mario on the original. That's yeah. when I realized that. Uh, that's when I realized that Sid was probably a latchkey kid because she <laughs> she just races through it, and I'm like, oh my god! Like I'm terrible at it because I never had it. So I yeah, like, I will die in World One Dash One like oh, three times. No. Yeah, I bet. I bet Sid and I could 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 get through Mario pretty quick. Oh yeah, uh, it's yeah. insane. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get a deep understanding of the physics of Mario if you were if you played it enough like I did. Yeah. I remember I'd play it at my my one friend's house and he'd always get mad at me cuz I'd ruin all his lives. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm trying. Be like, I had six lives and now I have nothing. <laughs> oh well. Um So I guess so that's I- that's the story of of Atari and uh, of the video game crash in 1983. Um, you know, kind of sad for for Atari and kind of sad for some of the people in the story that they were really in there on the ground floor of what wound up being an absolutely enormous industry. But they didn't, you know, for for various reasons, they just weren't didn't wind up being the Apple or the Microsoft or, or whatever of the, of the field. Yeah. They had such a head start, you know, they had no competitors. Maybe that's the thing though. I think competition is good for innovation. Um, maybe. Definitely. No, oh, definitely. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. I know. I, I was just, I'm just thinking ahead and, and the, <laughs> they're right. You know where we'll the story's there. going. Exactly. So uh, but we're going to be doing this chronologically. We're going to yeah. commit to this right now. So if you're listening. Okay. Listen the next, next episode week. is going to be. Yeah. We're going to kind of pick up. If you like video up. games. And if uh, not, but if you like, I don't know, just business stuff too. I think I, I always kind of love this, the uh, the stories of uh, of when companies collapse. Yeah. Yeah, I find sure. that stuff to be really interesting. You know how that happens. How how companies like, especially when it happens fast, fast, and when like when they're mighty, you know. Yes. Like, 
The bigger yeah. they are, the harder they fall. There's one particular uh, big company that fell pretty hard that I've got earmarked for for something down the line. So nice. We'll talk about that later, but uh, yeah. So you know, I don't know any any other thoughts on Atari in general, and just you know, kind of. I mean, how aside things... aside from just some nostalgic musings that uh, you know, not really, I guess. Yeah, you've got no personal connection with that brand. It was it was one of those things like my neighbor had it. And by the time like when I was a kid playing this thing, it was already just this old piece of shit that he had that, you know, was like, yeah, if it fucking works, we'll play it. And yeah, it was just one of those like I vaguely remember it. I remember it being brown. Was it brown? Brown. Yes. Aggressively yeah. brown. Everything like was, man. Yeah, I, it was made I of wood. It, yeah, I played it a brown Atari on a brown giant TV that sat on the ground <laughs> in a wood panel yes. basement. And it was a TV that, like, if you dropped it on somebody, it would kill them. Kill them, absolutely. 24-inch screen. We had a Sylvania 27-inch TV that sat on the ground, and we had that. That bad boy was, like, 20 years old by the time we got rid of it. <sighs> We didn't get rid of it until the flat. Remember the first flat TVs came out that were still CRT TVs, but they had the flat screens. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get rid of it <clears throat> until those. Came I'm out. pretty sure I had at least one friend. At, I might have even had at least I had at least one friend, but maybe two friends who at somewhere in their house, a CRT TV that that was meant to be on the ground had broken down. And rather than get rid of it, they had just stuck another TV on top of it that did work. Yeah, yeah, that was a thing. Dude, I remember getting <laughs> like shocked by the thing. Like, it would shock you occasionally. You'd feel like a... <laughs> it was great. But that thing, I mean, until we got rid of it, it worked. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. The old they, radiation they king. They don't make them like that anymore. They don't make them like they used to. Sure don't. I got a closing fact for you today. Can't wait. All right. So this is this ties into our uh, our C phobias, except it doesn't start with a C. It's another phobia. It's fascinating phobia. Do you know there's a, f- uh, a name for the fear of long words? I think you've already done this one. I posted it on the Twitter. Oh, okay. but I haven't done it in the show. Sorry. And f- from what I can tell, people who listen don't necessarily interact on Twitter, so I don't know if they <laughs> saw it or not. Which brings us to, before our closing fact here, uh, we got some links in the show notes. If you want to follow us on Twitter, say hey on Facebook, all that stuff, that would be awesome. We'd love to know that you've uh, made it to the end, have listened, enjoy the show, whatever. Uh, So carrying on here, we have the word for fear of long words. One quick thing. Okay. Some of these, some of these things like chronophobia, <laughs> fear of time. Where are you getting this? Who's afraid? Of, who goes? I'm afraid of time. Or who's afraid of clocks? Why are you afraid of clocks? What do you think? Well, they're I gonna think. Do? Well, I think a uh, clock is a symbol of your own ticking morality. Mortality, not morality. Yeah, I was gonna say my my morality is not ticking. It's plummeted long ago. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm gonna attempt this word. <laughs> I have no shame. So ironically, the word for the fear of long words oh, is gonna one say of the longest words. Okay. Hippo 
Pato Monstra Sequipedialophobia. I think I nailed it. <laughs> Hippopoto Monstro Squipedialophobia. Yeah, I think I nailed it there. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in the show notes so you can see what I'm working with here. And when Matt stops laughing, he's gonna save us. We'll say goodnight, and that'll be the end of this the show. If I was a, if I was a less mature me, man, I'd say you're a hippopotamonstro. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't because I'm very mature. Oh God. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Fact Smacks. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you want to hear more, be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash facts Or you can check us out on Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitter.com at FactSchmackedPod. We also have a website, factschmacks.xyz, because we know you haven't had enough yet. Sure. <laughs> <laughs>